What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Grabs Podcast. If you're listening to this, you probably already know what we do here. But in case you stumbled on, or this is the first one you're hearing, our goal here is simple, to highlight our wins and learn as much as we can from actual fireground rescues in the hopes of making us all a little bit smarter, more effective, and more efficient. Our guest today is Josh Baltz from Wilmington, North Carolina, Wilmington Fire Department, and we're fortunate enough to hear his powerful story so that we can all learn from his experience. How are you doing today, Josh? Doing good. How are you doing? Uh, doing really well, man. Thank you so much for, for coming on here and sharing your story. We really appreciate that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hope it can help somebody else. Uh, I love that attitude, man. Um, so just for our listeners, what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about Josh and his experience, a little bit about his department, and then we're going to get into the weeds on this actual rescue. Uh, so Josh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey? Sure. So Josh Waltz, I'm 33 years old. I am originally from Long Island, New York. I moved down to Wilmington, North Carolina when I got hired or offered the position. Um, that was about seven and a half years ago. Um, been extremely fortunate. I've had an amazing assignments through my career so far. I've had really, really great mentors. One of them is one of the gentlemen who um, helped make this rescue with me. Um, uh, yeah, just love this job. There's nothing better than this job. We get to have the best job in the world, right? Well said, brother. Can you tell us a little bit about Wilmington Fire? Sure. Wilmington Fire is, um, we have nine stations right now, 10th uh, one in the making, about 200 firemen, um, 15 companies share that. Uh, we cover about 53 square miles, I believe it is. And there's, they say 120,000 residents, but I mean, it's just blowing up every year more and more and more i don't even know how they could keep track um it's a great city uh it's pretty big we run in junction with our county on the outside of us which i bring that up because it's important it's part of the story our our response was a mutual aid to the neighboring county to us which is new hanover county um we do tons of training with those guys like we'll do joint company training so we do work really well together most of us are pretty much on the same like blue card operations i'm sure you're familiar with um but yeah it's a good city good department enjoy working with them perfect well to, to pull on that thread a little bit more uh of the training what is like the search culture like within your department and even regionally um so kind of what i mean by that is who typically searches and how do you guys prioritize search sure so i'd like to look at you and say truck company and rescue company are the guys that do the searches right um mm -hmm. and that's ideal but it really in, in this world is very situational it all kind of depends on who's get who gets there and if we're faced with somebody out front saying hey so and so is inside and where our mutual companies are coming from um being in the city we're pretty good at being able to get to each other really quick so that's usually not an issue very fortunate in my station we have a truck company that follows us to all of our alarms so with us, you know, truck eight, go grab your search, primary search. But um, typically it's going to be our truck and our rescue. We're going to assign a search company. There, I have four people per rig, but with staffing, we usually run with three. So split crews kind of doesn't really happen. Um, coming up in the future, though, they are putting a minimum manning of four per rig. So that will be helpful. So we can nice. start doing some split crew searching. Um, it's great to see us progress that way. So Hopefully that'll, that'll happen. Search culture. Um, we don't really get to do a lot of department-wide like mandatory search training, but we do have really strong companies across the department that um, put on some company level training. But our training division has definitely been, you know, 
redirecting a lot of what they've got going on. And we have started to see a lot more um, mandatory drills for all people rolling them through. We just finished doing um, RIP drills for our whole department. Every, per, every member had to attend it um, and complete it. So it's really good to see us progressing in the right directions. It's actually kind of exciting to be a part of that change. Beautiful. Love how you're trending in that, in that right direction and the, and the moves that you guys are making. Um, so how many crews are typically searching? How often are you guys kind of supplementing that search and sending multiple crews in to actually search, especially since you can't split your trucks or squads yet? Um, are there times where you're sending multiple crews in there, like the second truck and the squad or the first truck and the squad, or how does that work? Sure. Not to cop out with this situational answer, but you know, when we're dealing with like just our, our regular bread and butter residential structure, it's pretty typical that we'll just send in one company. If we don't have to send the truck to the roof to do ventilation, then we might say, Hey, go assist the rescue with search. Um, but for the most part from, you know, what I can really pull to, to mind is we'll typically assign a crew to go in and just and handle primary search. And obviously if it was a bigger building or a commercial building or something like that, then with the resources allowing it, then we'll definitely add another company, whatever needs to be done to, to make sure it's done efficiently. That's, that's beautiful. Well answered. And just for all our listeners, like these questions aren't meant to like uh, throw stones at any department. We're just trying to learn as much about uh, the department that is making this rescue as possible. So we can kind of put this all in context. Um, and along that same vein, and this one is a mutual aid fire. What, what units got dispatched to this fire? So right off the bat, they actually added a second alarm. I think that was just due to the fact that there was uh, the people calling it in had confirmed an entrapment. Um, it, it started as just a fire alarm, but then they, so let me back up. Our initial response for a structure fire of a residential structure would be three engines, a truck, a rescue, a battalion, and a safety. Um, but for this one, they added an additional engine and a truck, and that was due to the reports of a person trapped. So that was really good, great work by dispatch to have that right off the bat and not have to ask for it. So your, your comm center, your dispatch, they upped it to a second alarm. Is that right? Yeah. And, and again, it's tough because I didn't hear that initial dispatch because it went to our neighboring department. This is kind of just what I remember. This was back in 2018. So I'm doing my best to remember everything for you. But yeah, um, yeah. from what I remember of that dispatch is they got their pre-alert and then the whole alarm got banged out and we were on that initial alarm. So that would have meant that they dispatched that due to the reports of the trapped victim. I like that. Currently where, where I'm at, I don't think our comm center has that ability to to up an alarm all just based on the incoming information. And I think that's- don't. So. I think that's a really cool idea, though. Um, you know, I'm sure they're not going to pull that pin very often, but I think just giving them the ability and the permission to do that is, is a pretty solid idea. Yeah, I know they're pretty strict. It's basically you read what's written on the on the paper there, and that's kind of what you're not supposed to stray. But for whatever reason, that's how it went down. All right. Can you tell us a little bit about the rescue that you made? Uh, and I'm going to I'm going to jam a, a handful of questions in here or topics. But what was the date? What time of day was it? What was it dispatched as? Were there any reports of victims, which you already alluded to? Um, what rig were you on? And then what did the building look like? Just kind of paint a picture from dispatch to arrival on scene. All right. From dispatch to arrival. So we were it was December 10th, um, 2018. It was about 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, 
we were actually at the station doing a CRR video for our fire and life safety division. And this came in, it came in right off the bat to us in the, on the city side as a residential structure with a person trapped. They even put the trapped person's name on dispatch. So that really painted a picture like this is happening. Um, somebody's in there. From what I gathered over time, the it actually came in initially as a fire alarm. And the initial rig that responded to that alarm, they're literally like right up the street from them. So it was, they were on scene by them for, for a hot minute there, probably that uncomfortable minute, you know, with all that going on. Um, our response time to that with emergency traffic from our location to them was almost like eight to 10 minutes. Um, as we pulled into the neighborhood that it was going, you could see a lot of smoke. Um, if you, you know, my helmet cam caught a bunch of it. It was obvious that there was a job, you know, on the way there, we had heard reiterating reports of a, a confirmed entrapment. So your, your blood pressure, you know, your heart rate's already pinging. And we staged the rig out of the way on one of the side streets. As we made our way down the street of the lo fire location, our battalion chief out, actually the city battalion chief was there already on scene. He got out of his car and he just looked at us and said, eight, I need you guys to go inside and assist engine 14. Um, for everybody listening, what that meant was we're, engine 14 had at this time already gone interior to try to make a rescue. So we knew that we were um, getting masked up to get inside and help make this rescue. Um, the house, the driver was in the driveway um, fighting the fire. The crew that got there before us, and for all the listeners, I'm going to go ahead and explain real quick that this was a mutual fire. So I can't speak exactly on what they were facing when we got there from videos and talking to the guys um, and the video, which I think will be attached to this, right? Correct. Um, you can see that they had heavy fire um, conditions from basically the garage and the room above the garage. The room above the garage, which here we call the frog, was actually where the um, patient was located. Um, but when you see that video, it was rolling. Um, when we got there, they had put a decent knock on that initial bit. The first crew had taken a line in with them to start their primary search, and the driver had remained in the driveway um, at ghost pumping the rig, if you will, to try to help keep it back. So they did an amazing job at trying to reduce the conditions of that fire while giving that person is, you know, any, any chance of survival they had. That was beautiful. So you were there to help engine 14. Yes. What, uh, and the, and the driver was getting water on the fire. You had fire in the garage and then the family room over to the garage, your, your frog. That's where the main body of fire was. You went in that front door. What did, what were conditions like once you crossed that threshold? Completely black. Could not see anything. Um, the fire had basically run the whole roof line. So it was all above us. Um, and in any, most cases, this would have ended up becoming a defensive fire for, you know, if we knew that there wasn't a person trapped. Um, but because of what we had going on, they sent us in to, to go get it done. Um, but complete, complete blackout conditions. We couldn't see anything. Honestly, it was the first time that I had been in a fire where it was that level of um, visibility. Usually you can see something, you know, you can see your hands in front of you. You can, you can make out at least a, a wall or a hallway, uh, but pitch black. So once you cross that threshold, 
How did you guys end up locating either engine 14 or the victim or both? Sure. So when we made the front door, I just immediately announced engine eight, engine eight, just to kind of get a voice on where they were. Um, and this is where I made one of my biggest mistakes and we'll get to it later. But um, I heard the captain from engine 14 say, hey, over here, over here. And I just went right to his voice. Um, at that point, he said, hey, my man needs a hand. My man needs a hand. And I was like, what do you got? And he's like, my man needs a hand right here. And, you know, later I, the captain was sitting on the nozzle, still trying to keep the fire at bay while his man was down on because they had a crew of three that day. So it was drivers outside, captain and the, and the fireman inside. So he kind of directs me to where to go. And I just I, I go down and I hear him. You know, I, I can feel him touch him, get down. I'm like, what do you got? And he lets me know what we're dealing with. He tells me he's got a patient, agonal breaths. Um, and it got real, real right there. You know, I leaned down and you have a foot in your hand and that's when everything kind of was like, whoa, here we go. It's game time. So engine 14 brought a line in with them inside. Their driver is hitting it from the exterior as well. They also locate the victim. The, the officer of engine 14 is flowing water to make sure you're maintaining that there or controlling that flow path and keeping the fire at bay locate that victim you get hands on that victim how does it go from that point forward well i'd be lying if i said that i didn't black out a little bit when i with the adrenaline <laughs> hit you right um like <laughs> you know you, you you train for these moments as much as you can but when you're really truly faced with it out there I, there's no way to train for that you know to um it was unreal to be to be honest but either way it was time to go it was time to work this is what we train for right so I immediately looked at him. I said, let's go. We got to go. We got to move. We got to get him out. So we each grab a leg and we started, we started moving towards the door. Um, we made it a little bit. And at that point, the firefighter from engine 14, his low air alarm started going off. And now his, they, they had a bell. It's going off. It's a crazy loud. Um, the environment just got really hectic. Um, so he ends up heading out. And he switched out with my engineer or master firefighter, John Feely. And that man was like an angel on scene. He's been a mentor of mine throughout my whole fire service career. And he got there. He asked me what we had. I told him. And he literally just said, all right, let's go. And just he just took a troll and everything was better. Um, we started moving. But part of what had happened when I had made entry was I kind of lost where I was. So when we moved in, we, we started reversing out with the patient into a dining room with tables and chairs. And, and we, it was very confusing if I'm being honest. And I, I had started to obviously get a little stressed. That's why I was thankful when John got there and he was able to calm the situation down. And we kind of yelled out, you know, where's our exit? And finally our captain had chimed in. He's like right here. And he had the thermal imaging camera and was able to, you know, at that point, got us out um we were really lucky to ride with four that day so our third uh sean john he went around to the head he was controlling the um patient's head while john started calling the command ready move which we all learned but when he started actually using that command in the field everything was smooth um that was a game changer you know you we're just trying to tog and move and you have a you know maybe an excess of 250 pound gentleman completely unconscious 
it was amazing at how heavy that really felt. Um, and you need to work together for that to be successful. So we finally started moving them out. We made it out the door, got him on the ground. We immediately began working him. And at that point, somebody yelled that he was breathing. Um, John actually looked at me and said, you know, pointed at his nose and his nose was covered in soot and boogers. And, and he, he kind of told me, Hey man, you got to get that, you know? And I was like, what, what do you mean? And that, so he told me clear, clear his nose. So I took my gloved hand, my glove off my hand and cleared his boogers out of his nose for him. And, um, so we got to have some laughs about that one when we later had opportunity to meet him, but incredible opportunity. We handed him over the, the crew that had left, um, engine 14, when he went out because of his low air, they were really thought ahead. They went and they grabbed the med bags and met us at the front door with all the medical equipment. So they had everything ready because they knew what was coming. Um, so it was really proactive on them. Kudos to, to having that ready. I, I feel like sometimes that's an afterthought or when, when we're dealing with these scenes is having the med bags ready. Um, yeah. But EMS was also on scene. So we were able to transfer, transfer them right over to their care. And they just crushed it from there. They 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 got him out of there and and did all, all their EMS stuff. And and he's still alive today. So going back just a touch, you said that you got your hands on him as you were removing him. You ended up in the dining room. What room was he initially in? So he was in a hallway. I'm gonna try to paint a quick picture for everyone listening. All right. Yeah. So, give me the layout too. Yep. So I, I walk in the front door and. There was a line on the ground and the officer was standing about five, 10, 15 feet in the door, maybe. And that and I heard his voice. So I just went straight to him. So I didn't really realize until later, you know, when we went back and looked that the room to the left, immediately to the left of that front door was a dining room. But it was laid out kind of like I want to say maybe an open floor dining room where it there was a small wall when you first walk in, then a big opening and then the corner wall. Right. So it was like a two foot and then a two foot corner and then wide open again as a, as another, you know, enlarged doorway, if you will. And then the rest of the, the hall. So we were in a hallway and that's where he was at the bottom of the stairs. So he was actually a handicapped individual who was in that room above, but he had just enough in him. He was up in that room and he saw the fire coming up the, the sides of the walls because the fire had started in the garage mm -hmm. and he had enough in him as, a, as this, um, you know, he's kind of almost paralyzed legs and arms, but had very little mobility, enough to throw himself down the stairs. So he got himself down those stairs, which saved his life. And that's where that's where he was located. So when we started okay. coming out, we were leaning against that wall on the left, you know, that dining room wall. And so we hit that first opening and I was like, you know, I didn't realize how far I'd gone because I was kind of just moving quick. Um, thinking that I was at that turn back to the front door already. Whereas that was actually just the big wide opening to the dining room. But since I didn't go in on like a search with a right or a left hand search, I had just gone to the voice. I really kind of lost some orientation. Um, so that was a huge takeaway was to make sure, you know, in the future that I, I kind of know where I am all the time. It was, it was a big lesson. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Can you, uh, can we try to, to parse out a little bit about how that removal went as well? I know you said that that once John got out there, it got easier, but where were your hands on the victim? Where were John's hands on the victim? And, and how did you actually uh, physically move this guy out of the structure? Sure. So first get to him. Um, 
and his feet were facing me. His head was facing further into the structure where his feet were facing the exit, right? So um, the other fireman had a foot, I had a foot, and we just started pulling from his feet. Um, and when John got there and took over, we continued with that. It was just at the time, the easiest thing to do, mm-hmm. um, grab them, go. Uh, we, we started moving. Obviously, you know, we don't want to drag someone across the ground. Um, but we had our third fireman, Sean Johnson. He was, he was maintaining head control. So we knew his head was protected and we just had to get him out. And that was just what was working the fastest. Um, and we got him once I'm telling you, once John did that ready move command, uh, everything started going smoother and we got him out. I think it took us two to three minutes if when we, when we went back to look at the helmet foot cam footage um, for full, for full removal from, from contact to out the door was between two and three minutes. Nice. Um, I will say t- talking about that um, after the call, I had thought a lot about picking them up, like how we moved them. Right. Was that really the best way to do it? Because in training, you're, you're trained, you know, get around behind their chest, sit them up, put your arms through and grab a wrist, you know, kind of bear hug them and move. Um, but when we had later talked to uh, the gentleman after, he had told us from the center that he had been transferred to that if he had taken even two more breaths of smoke that day, that he wouldn't have survived. So it kind of helped me get past trying to analyze everything that we did, right? Because for me to do that, I would have lifted him further up into the into that smoke, that IDLH atmosphere, right? He was as low as he could be in the safest place his face could be as an unconscious person taking the cleanest possible air that was left in there. So if I had picked him up, now first I have to turn him around. So that would have taken more time. And then we would have, you know, raised him up into more of that smoke. So was it the best possible way to get him out? You know, I don't know. We could, you could talk about it all day, but it, it was the best way for that situation. I think that's powerful. The fact that, and, and just make sure that I'm, I'm not misspeaking here, but the, the physician at the burn center told the patient that if he had taken a couple more breaths, he likely would not be here today. Is that what you were saying? That's correct. Yes. And this is the physician that had to, to flush his lungs out daily for, for a week or weeks afterwards. That's correct. So yep. nobody would have a better better opinion on this, even though there's some slight speculation. It's based off of a lot of uh, a lot of data and experience from from that physician. So that's pretty powerful. So thank you for sharing that that point because sometimes what's the fastest might not be what's the best for the patient. Getting lower uh, oftentimes is what's best. And uh, I, I love how you guys moved them. You used how they were presenting uh, to your advantage. So it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and, and like. We really couldn't see what we were dealing with. I had no idea, to be honest, how large of an individual he was or anything. When I got to him, it was, you know, I the only thing I could see was his toes. And it was just grab and, grab and go. Like, the most important thing was was getting back outside. Um, and and to kind of touch on, on what you said there with the second, you know, how quick time was. Um, that was the big open eye opener for me when it came to, you know, masking up and being prepared was had we not have masked up and been as prepared and practiced our training and practice putting our PPE on, you know, would we have gotten in there and removed him as quick as, as it needed to happen? So what we you know in the fire service, you always hear seconds count, seconds count, seconds count. But like this is the literally as perfect of an example as it can be 
that seconds count. I mean, it's only a couple seconds that you're going to take two more breaths, right? So, yeah. you know, and, and we can, like you said, we could talk all day long about, well, what does that, how they really get that data? But I mean, those are people that have way more experience in that field than I do that, that came up with that. So. So you look pretty darn fit. How important was being in good shape to this operation? You said it took about two to three minutes to remove them, um, uh, some more time to actually get in there and mask up and everything else. But how how spent were you, uh, even when you had three people removing him? Was this physically taxing on you? One hundred percent. It's you know we work we take pride in working out at our station every day. It's actually department policy that we have to work out an hour with our crew. But to to think that you can be successful at this job and and not you know remain in a physical fit stance um it's kind of crazy because you know he wasn't that big of an individual but it really is nothing like the dummies that we have to drag or when we're put, pulling around a, a down firefighter who's in turnout gear with an SUV on and we can grab a strap it was completely different than that it was a lot of work to get him out and it's a lot of work to get them out safely you know, um, we don't want to cause more damage trying to rescue somebody. So you have to be careful of their head and their body and, and coming around these corners and all the stuff you're, you're dragging them into. So, yeah, like it, it was very taxing to answer your question for sure. That seems to be a, a theme that I've noticed in almost every one of these that I've done is it's a lot more physically demanding than, than anybody realized. Um, and I've, I've interviewed some beasts of humans too. Um, and when they're saying that, that, that speaks pretty loudly to someone who's my stature, who, you know, I'm five, eight ish and 160 pounds. So if it's taxing to guys that are 220 and, and ripped, um, I know it's going to kick my butt. So it's, it's a good reminder to keep hearing that. Do you yeah, have to know? Really we got really lucky too that we didn't have the slip. It wasn't slippery. You know, I've listened to a lot of these podcasts and, and they come across that slipperiness and, and we were extremely fortunate that we hadn't gotten there yet. Um, nice. So we didn't, we didn't have to fight against that. Do you happen to know how long it took from arrival on scene? So for the, uh, the mutual aid company before you guys arrived at the victim, before anybody arrived at the victim? Man, that's a great question. Um, you know, I never really analyzed that time. I had my helmet cam footage, which was the way that we were able to determine how much time from when we made contact and when we got him out. Yeah. But I wouldn't really be able to give you an honest answer um, from our arrival to when we got there. I'd like to tell you it was only, you know, a minute out front. You know, we ran down the street, knew exactly what our assignment was as we were making our way down the street. And mm-hmm. as soon as we got to the front lawn, we masked up and we went inside. So, um, our, my company takes a lot of pride in getting masked up and getting dressed quickly. So that wasn't like something that took us a long time to do. So I'd like to think that, you know, you, maybe you add a minute to that time from when we were inside from our arrival, but um, it'd be hard for me to give you a true honest answer. No, I appreciate that. And for, for those listening, uh, we alluded to this already, but there's a video um, that's on YouTube that Wilmington fire department is, is, has shared and they kind of go through this. They kind of do the anatomy of this rescue for everybody that's listening. So kudos for, for uh, Wilmington Fire for doing that and for you sharing your, uh, your actual helmet cam video for that as well. Because I think that's it's one of the greatest tools that we have that too many departments are, uh, uh, are afraid to, to put out there. So, so kudos to Wilmington Fire as well. So as we kind of wrap up. Can I touch on that though real quick? Please, please. I, I just want to say that 
you know, it was really awesome that our department decided to make this video, but it's really important for everyone to know, like, that's not a look at me, look at me, look at, look at what we did. We learned a lot of really, really valuable lessons that day on things that, you know, you can't train for necessarily um, for that kind of a change in, in your mind and in your adrenaline and that spike. Um, and the purpose of coming on here and talking to you and, and making that video and putting it out there was so that, you know, hopefully it can help somebody else think about those things. Um, I just want to make sure everybody knows that that wasn't, you know, look at us, look at us as, as far from the crew that, that I have the opportunity to work with, but it was a huge lesson learned and it's it'd be selfish not to share that uh well said man and that's that's beautiful you couldn't ask for a for a better reason just a, a perfectly altruistic reason it's not a highlight re, uh, reel if you watch this thing um and they get into the weeds of you know what did they learn from this and, and so to to we, we've talked about a little bit about this as well um but what are some of the things or one of the things that you guys learned from this fire that you would like to pass on to our listeners yeah i mean i got a couple um orientation like going in there with my mind on just linking up with that crew and going straight to the voice of the that captain um really hurt me when it came time to leaving because i had no idea about that dining room so that would have been key is you know always 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 maintaining orientation um masking up you know we really take pride now you know i i've been fortunate enough so is john to take part in uh, teaching our recruit academy now and we do not let them mask up without gloves from the day they take ppe class till the till the day they hit the streets if they're seen masking up without gloves they're doing burpees so um, being able to get masked up really quick it was key to that and one you know another really big thing as you know this happened back in 2018 so now some of us are moving kind of to some leadership roles in the department and it's really hard not to get your hands involved in work as you start getting to those leadership roles, right? When you're playing up as acting captain and, and you want to, you want to work, right? But that officer's job of, of monitoring that tick and knowing the egress and, and making sure that, that he's got them a, a way out is key as well. So for all of the officers out there, and it's hard not to touch that patient and get involved in, and help, but that role is just as vital at making sure that that you know the way out has this fire changed your mindset or even department-wide your mindset towards the job or how you train or how you guys search absolutely you know it's easy to 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 want to train and want to go on that call right but to to actually have been faced with the call that we all train for all the time it it, it opened up a lot you know i thought i was ready and i'd like to think i was because we got the job done right but there were so many things that were learned from it so to just constantly be learning constantly be training constantly be thinking of different scenarios never think that that you know that you got it figured out because you don't you, you can't you can't plan everything um and I, and honestly like one of the biggest things is that everything is done as a team um I'm the only one here talking on this camera. That's just because I'm the guy from Long Island who talks a lot. So they just nominated me to be the one to do the speaking. But to think that any of that could have been done without everybody that was there that day from the first crew who got there and put a, a really good knock on that fire, found and found that patient and um, helped start moving them and everybody getting to me. 
everything just happened in a team environment. So to think that you'll go through this career and ever do anything by yourself is, is kind of crazy. Um, you really got to be a team player and know that it's not about me, me, me making this happen. It's about us. How can we do it? Preach. Um, well said. I, I think we're going to wrap up here. Is there anything before we kind of wrap up that you want to pass along? Anything that we didn't touch uh, throughout this interview? I think I think we got it all. I mean, just again, just kudos to New Hanover for getting in there and getting that fire knocked back quick. And um, to anyone listening, just just work on that mask up time because you don't want to be caught trying to mask up and putting your gloves on when when you get that given that assignment. I'm really, really, really grateful that John always made me practice masking up quick because when we were given that assignment, um, we were ready for it. Josh, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. We really appreciate your time, your authenticity. You did a great job painting a picture and, and your humbleness was, uh, was impressive. For everyone listening, if you or anyone you know makes a grab, please go to firefighterrescuesurvey.com and fill out a quick survey. That's one survey per rescue so that all of us can get smarter, better, and faster. And if you make a grab and you want to share your experience with all of our listeners, please reach out to either Grant Schwalbe, Justin McWilliams, or myself, Nick Ledeen, and we'll try to record an episode. Lastly, thank you to everyone listening. Take care.